If you'll take your copy of God's word and remain standing and turn to Colossians 2, 16 through 3, 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, let no one pass judgments on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth, growth that is from Christ, God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Imagine the, uh, the other guys who get up here to preach uh, week in and week out will agree. Um, I don't feel like my sermon is really done being prepared till this moment. Uh, just the morning, the singing, the catechism, the prayers, the call to worship. Um, it's such a gift, such a blessing from God. And thank you for those who are up front. And thank you to all of you for just singing and worshiping together. It's sweet to be here as a family. And, uh, and now, as of this moment, I feel ready. Uh, let's pray for God's help. Our God in heaven, Lord, we thank you. Um, we thank you for this feast day. We thank you for the Lord's day. A Sabbath to set aside um, our earthly work and to come together as those who've been marked off by you, who've been given new life in Christ, to worship you, to receive your invitation to come and gather and see you and enjoy you and to do it together as a family. Your word is a gift. Your word comes to us as the rain uh, to a dry and parched land. We pray this morning for your blessing upon the reading and the preaching. We pray, Lord, that you would accomplish all your purposes. We pray that uh, what happens in the next few minutes would go beyond speaker and hearers, would go beyond sound equipment and would be something divine uh, that you would do a work here in us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Uh, Proverbs chapter 4 gives us two images. That's not our preaching text this morning, but um, it's the landscape that I want to lay before we get into today's text in Colossians 2. Proverbs 4 gives us two images, one of the way of the wicked and one of the way of the righteous. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Whereas the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Now, first off, that should be an encouragement to us. For those who are in Christ, light has dawned. And it's going to tend to grow brighter and brighter in our lives. It also prompts a question. How are we going to experience brighter and brighter? How will we make our paths as bright as possible in this time we have here on earth? Surely it's a work of God, external to us, but what means does God use to accomplish bringing that brightness? In other words, as we've been going through Colossians, how will you seek and find fullness in the Christian life? That's been a central theme, the quest for fullness, for maturity, and for growth. Now, we want to grow. We Christians, we who have been saved by God's grace in Christ, we want to grow. We want to progress in the Christian life. Many solutions are presented to us every day. Since the last time we were here, Uh, Seven days ago, meeting here, this week we've all been presented with many solutions that are going to fill up what is lacking in us, what we feel is, uh, what we feel is empty, what we feel is missing. Lots of solutions from the world, maybe even from springing up from our own hearts, maybe suggestions even within a Christian context of what's going to bring fullness to us. Many voices saying, this is the secret, this is the solution. That emptiness you feel, this will fill it. We're going to see this morning a divine solution presented to us as we're right here in the middle of our uh, march through this letter from Paul to this young church uh, of the Colossians. And the main point, the main thrust of this divine solution that we're going to see is this. Live free as you cling to Christ. Central thrust this morning of live free as you cling to Christ. If you're taking notes, there'll be three points, which I'll note as we go through. Point one is the limits of law. Point two is be more dead. And point three, holding fast to the head. So let's launch into point one, the limits of law. The Colossians desired fullness, they desired growth in Christ, victory, moral and spiritual, and they were presented with options. Not just presented with options, but solutions were being pressed upon them. They had voices trying to sway them toward this or that as the key, the secret sauce of fullness in the Christian life. These suggestions, you'll see them in the text, Colossians 2.16, questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are all related to the Jewish ceremonial law. Also, verse 18, asceticism, 
Verse 20, regulations. Human precepts and teaching. Asceticism being a severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence. Taking the form of re- uh, regulation. So uh, you see it in verse 21 in this uh, you know, sort of pithy phrase. Uh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Okay, and also sprinkled in there some mystical visions and worship of angels. Uh, it's difficult to nail down exactly what, what were all these competing teachings um, to which Paul's responding to because that's not his focus. That's not, he doesn't try to fully unpack all of these wrong uh, solutions. It's less a critique of the air than it is a positive statement of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in his person and in his work. Paul's overall point being here, do not let anyone pass judgment on you. Do not let anyone disqualify you in matters of conscience. Okay? Judging, having the sense of one person holding another guilty of a crime, imposing on a person's conscience so, such that they are no longer free, binding consciences, and disqualifying Disqualifying is the sense of causing a competitor to lose his prize. Okay, so you're running toward the finish line and someone's trying to cheat you out of your victory by drawing you aside. Okay, disqualification. These are a drawing aside, these, these suggestions, these um, regulations, these solutions that draw one aside because they are not the key to the Christian life. They're not... Uh, bringing you and are not going to bring you the fullness uh, that you seek, or in this context of the letter that Colossians seek. Because human traditions are a labyrinth, they're a maze, which consciences are more and more entangled. They're snares, which from the beginning bind in such a way that in the course of time, they will strangle. The Christian life, Christian life deals with matters of the heart with the affections. All of these regulations, whether they be inspired from the Bible, um, and I don't mean in the, in the sense of biblical inspiration, but they're, they're sort of taking something out of the Bible and springing out of that, giving you a, a, a regulation to follow, or whether they're outside the Bible or blatantly secular or pagan, they're all focused on restraining the outward, cleaning the outside of the cup, whitewashing tombs, But our problem is inward. You desire growth. You need substance. You need inner nourishment. Guidelines will not nourish you. Guidelines don't give growth. That's central to what Paul is saying. William Hendrickson said, there is no material cure for a spiritual ill. Neglect of the body, think of asceticism in this text, neglect of the body will never heal the soul's sickness but will aggravate it. So now at this point, we need, we need a little bit of nuance and a little bit of clarification here. We need to make some distinct, uh, distinctions between God-given law and man-made regulations. Okay? There are different kinds of guidelines, different kinds of laws, commands, rules for life. We need to differentiate between, I have three categories, what is commanded by God, what is optional, possibly helpful in the Christian life, and what is forbidden, okay? So we need to make some distinctions. As such, there are some that must be obeyed, 
some that may be practiced, and some that must be rejected. Okay, it seems that Paul in this text is mostly dealing with those that are not commanded, maybe not even all that helpful, and some that are even harmful. Okay, but let's zoom in for a, middle, uh, for a minute here on that middle category of matters of liberty, okay, that which is neither commanded in Scripture nor forbidden in Scripture. Okay, so what would be, um, and then as we do that, as we zoom in on that category, matters of liberty, um, let us not judge one another. That, that's, a, that's a major two commands here in the early part of this text. Let us not judge one another and not take to heart the judgment of others in matters of liberty, in those matters of conscience, okay? And in doing that, we have to exercise wisdom and some discernment to put things in the proper category. So maybe some examples will help. So you come to small group this week, men's discipleship group, women's discipleship group, youth discipleship, you come to small group and somebody in the discussion time says, guys, let's worship angels. That's going to be the key. That's where we need to go. That's an easy one, right? We reject that. That's not biblical. That's wrong. We should reject that, okay? Whereas on the other hand, we come to men's group on Wednesday morning. Guys, let's be faithful to our wives, okay? Yes, that's an easy one too. We accept it. We This is commanded by God. Clearly, we obey this, okay? And then in this middle category where we have liberty, this is where things get trickier. And I made a list uh, after much thought and prayer and knowing the dangers. But I think I'm going to share my list, and you may have yours. And these are matters I see of being of liberty to perhaps give some helpfulness here and maybe a starting point for discussion if we need to. But matters of liberty might include worship music style, praise songs, hymns, psalms only, matter of liberty, uh, drinking alcohol in moderation, smoking a cigar, eating gluten or abstaining, the authors you like to read, the precise layout of your liturgy, your preaching style, expositional, sequential, topical, the Bible version you prefer to read, whether to go trick-or-treating or not. Probably as I say each one, you know, the room's getting divided, <laughs> right? People are shuffling from one side to the other, right? I trust there are probably good reasons for wherever you land and I land on each one of these topics, right? People who are looking to the Bible, to inform how we live our lives, including all of these important topics, right? We probably have good reasons for where we land. But you can also rest assured that whichever way you go with these, they won't be the key to the Christian life. They won't be the cure to your spiritual ills, and they won't result in your fullness. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind as we pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now we're going to shift our focus briefly from that middle category, matters of liberty, matters of conscience, to laws that are actually commanded in Scripture and must be obeyed. We're going to put our focus on those for just a second, especially setting up where we're going with the rest of Colossians, laying a bit of groundwork for the rest of Colossians that we'll cover in future weeks. Paul is not saying that all law, all commands are optional, or that no commands should bind the Christian 
conscience. If we come away from today thinking that's what, what the point is or what Paul is teaching here, we're going to be super confused next week and the whole rest of Colossians. Because for the rest of this letter, literally until his final greetings, the rest of the letter is do's and do nots, do's and don'ts. He's giving us commands, things to do, things not to do. Okay? Paul has labored thus far in Colossians to convince us that pressing into law, pressing into commands, will not give the growth or the fullness that we're seeking. We're going to be called to put some things to death, called to bring some things to life, but only after grasping and being convinced that true fullness is knowing Christ, knowing and feeling that Christ is our life, as the text says. So we need these God-given regulations, we need God-given commands, we need law in the Christian life, but for a specific purpose. Firstly, to drive us to Christ, and then also to serve as a guide, but not as fuel, not for fullness. Let me say that again. To drive us, the law, firstly to drive us to Christ, and also to serve as a guide, but not as fuel, and not for fullness in the Christian life. The law is good if used lawfully. Let's try to illustrate this for, for just a second before we move on to point two. It's like this in some ways. In your quest to progress in sanctification and to grow in the Christian life, you have a 200-ton locomotive. And the law, even in its best, clearest, God-given commands, gives you train tracks and says, go. But you've got no fire in the steam engine, and you have no coal, no wood, no fuel. And this is where the law leaves you. Here are the tracks, go. Or you have a fully rigged ship, and the law gives you a compass and a map and says, bon voyage, okay? But no wind. You're sitting in the doldrums. The wind will not blow. You have no current, and you are sitting on a sandbar. And the law says, hit it. Or you have an empty belly. You are hungry. And you have pots and pans and measuring cups, and the law presents to you a recipe and says, eat and be filled. This is the way to go. But you have no meat, you have no flour, you have no produce, you have nothing with which to prepare your meal. We need train tracks, we need compasses and maps, we need pots and pans, we need a recipe, but they're not going to fuel us forward in the Christian life. John Bunyan said, run John, run the law of commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands, right? We need the law. The law guides and directs, but it doesn't fuel the Christian life. So if guidelines are not nourishing the Christian, and the law is not fuel propelling the Christian life, then what is, right? That's the natural question. What is? That brings us to our second point this morning. Be more dead. Paul presents an alternative to the external regulations that is possibly somewhat surprising. Paul says key to the Christian life, key to the Christian life is to understand that you are already dead. 
probably need some explanation. We're going to build toward that in three levels. Level one, Christ died in accordance to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. After 40 days, he ascended and was lifted up into heaven. These are historical facts about the God-man who lived and died, was raised and ascended. Level one is the level of historical facts. Level two, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds, we have been healed. God raised Jesus and will also raise us by his power. So Jesus performed level one historical facts. He did what he did for sinners, for all that would place their faith in him. In our stead, in our place, on the cross when he was crucified, Jesus took on our sin to take on our punishment. Since he was raised, we will be raised. He is our substitute and he is the first fruits. Now let's stop there before we go on to level three. If, if there's anyone in the room, if you're sitting here right now, and anything in level one, level two, in terms of the historical facts about Jesus Christ and him doing all that work on behalf of sinners, if there's anything there that's murky or unclear to you, or it's clear, but you know that's not, that's not at the core of your being. That's not what you believe. That's not what you're trusting in in your life. I want to encourage you, don't leave this place till you've addressed that, till you've sought that clarity, till you've sought that reconciliation with the Lord. Give yourself no rest and give God no rest till you've resolved these questions about who Jesus Christ is, what he's done, and what it means for you before God. God, sa- God stands and he says, look to me and be saved. And Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. He is the only savior for sinners. He calls all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Without money, he offers himself freely. Look to Christ, receive him, come to him, flee to him and enjoy rest in him today. Level three builds on levels one and two. Level one, the historical facts of Christ. Level two, him doing what he did in the stead of sinners. Level three is the level of union with Christ, and it goes even further still. Union with Christ says that when these things happen to Jesus, they happen to us, okay? Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6 says, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Ephesians 4.8 says that when he ascended, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives with him. This is our mystical union with Christ. And it's what Paul appeals to in exhorting the Colossians and exhorting us 
to not submit to external man-made regulations in our quest for fullness and growth. See it in our text here. Colossians 2.20, with Christ you died. Look at verse 1 in chapter 3. You have been raised with Christ. Verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ. And verse 4, when Christ appears, referring to his second coming, still future, you also will appear with him in glory. So we are unified with Christ, both in his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. The route to maturity is not the path of secret revelations or of self-punishing disciplines. It consists in understanding and living on the basis of your death, resurrection, and heavenly enthronement with Christ. Now, what is the link between what Paul exhorts us to that we covered in point one, okay, the limits of law, point one, let no one pass judgment on you, let no one disqualify you in these matters of conscience, matters of liberty, How does that connect with Paul's repeated statement, you died? He's offering this as the solution, but what what is that link there between you died, so don't do that. Don't submit to these regulations. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Think with me. What would be the opposite of being dead to your old self? being alive to self, right? And what does being alive to yourself look like? You could probably add more to this picture. But being alive to self looks like feeling insecure, being insecure, people-pleasing, being defensive, criticizing others, bristling at others' criticism of you, real or perceived, frustrated at not receiving the recognition that I deserve. As we bear those marks, those are manifestations of being alive to self. Now, in the context of being alive to self, matters of liberty become opportunities, right? Opportunities to earn others' approval. If I have the freedom to choose this thing or that thing, then my choice can be a means to earn the respect, the approval, the admiration, or the acceptance of the people, particularly that I deem most important. And the result is slavery. And Paul says, don't do that. You died. Right? You died with Christ. Stop being so alive to what other people are telling you is going to solve the problems in your life. That's our union with Christ, playing out practically. Now, your union with Christ, our union with Christ, is a fact. It's an objective spiritual reality, but it is also really hard to grasp sometimes. I very much feel... And sense, we might think, I very much feel and sense that I'm here. I know I'm here. I don't feel like I'm there at the right hand of God with Christ, right? I may believe it's true, but it's hard to grasp onto it, feel it, and 
know what to do with that. The truth is we press into our union with Christ. We have to act in order to grow in our grasping of it. And the path to that growth and, and that um, grasping onto our union with Christ is communing with Christ. So that brings us to point three, holding fast to the head. Holding fast to the head. We walk by faith and not by sight. In communing with Christ, we are pulling heavenly realm truths down here. The New Testament speaks of two ages. That's the present evil age and the age to come. In Christ, the age to come has already arrived, but the present age dominated by sin will not completely expire until Christ returns. And while this age persists, Christians press into their union with Christ by communing with him. Communion with Christ involves sharing, exchanging, deep personal thoughts, sharing an intimacy that goes to deepest feelings, fears, and joys with one another. You know him and he knows you through your regular contact with one another. You can see this in our text with phrases like this, verse 19, holding fast to the head, holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Jesus Christ is the substance, in the words of Paul in verse 17 in our text, to Christ the entire church owes its growth. We need not, must not look for any other source of strength to overcome sin or to increase in knowledge, virtue, and joy. So we've seen Paul break down the solutions being offered to the Colossians in chapter 2. And now moving into chapter 3, he's offering them a better solution, a divine solution. Look at verse 1 in chapter 3. An imperative, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, another imperative, set your mind, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So we are risen with Christ, that's our union, and we must seek the things that are above. We have died to sin, that's our union, but we must put to death the sins that remain. That's next week's text, verse 5. Although Paul rejects legalistic asceticism, he calls upon believers to become in practice what they are in principle, dead to sin and alive to God. So the Christian life is an attempt motivated, motivated by God's grace to live according to the principles of the age to come. In other words, to be more dead. So let's get more specific. Paul is trying to draw us up higher while the regulations imposed on conscience pull us back down to the earth. We're raised with Christ. We must let the power of Christ's resurrection be experienced by us in an ever-increasing degree. The seeking and the setting of Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, are exhortations to meditation. Meditation upon the heavenly life. Meditations upon Christ Meditations upon all the treasures that are found in him, Christ and who he is in all his attributes. Whereas asceticism says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, Jesus says, taste and see that I am good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in me. 
Jesus says to his disciples, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Speaking of the wounds he received when he purchased us, when he died, when we died. Guidelines don't give growth, but the person of Jesus Christ does. And the Colossians sought fullness, and we should too. Paul says, you're in heaven now, grow into that heavenly mindedness. Now, as we meditate on our union with Christ and hold fast to Jesus, we progress in the Christian life. Whereas the law had given us train tracks pointed and said, go, and we're left to push the locomotive. But in holding fast to Jesus, now the pistons are pumping owing to a raging fire, even an all-consuming fire. With the law, we had our ship, we had our compass, we had our map. Law points us in the right direction. Now we have the very Spirit of God blowing in our sails, pushing us toward glory. With the law, we had the recipe, we had the pots and pans and measuring cups, but now we have the substance, we have the bread of life, we have true food to feed on in Christ. To return to Bunyan, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Surely in applying this, there's an individual element to it, right? When I think about communion with God, communing with Jesus, I have a particular image of a particular place in my house. I'm alone <laughs> with coffee and my Bible, and that's my first picture of communion with Christ. Surely that's part of it our personal quiet times, our devotional times, personal prayer. But think of the ordinary means of grace in Acts 2.42, the early days of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These ordinary means of grace by which the early church grew, by which we grow now, are all communal. These are communal acts driving growth. And the commands in verses 1 and 2 here in Colossians 3, seek the things that are above, set your mind on things above, and the grounds for those, you have been raised, all of the yous there are plural. All of the yous are plural. Y'all been raised. Right? The commands are corporate, seek, plural, set, plural. You are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Well, Paul's exhortation to the Colossians, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. These are calls to Christian freedom. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Our union with Christ in his death has freed us from sin, freed us from worldly rules that enslave our consciences. That describes what we've been freed from. And what we've been freed to, freedom to serve one another in love. Freedom to work, freedom to rest 
in Christ together. Let us live free as we cling to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the gift of your word. We thank you for the freedom that results from the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the behalf of lost, helpless, undeserving sinners. We thank you, Jesus, that all you have done, you have done for us. And we pray as we leave this place that we would be changed. We would be changed and shaped by your word and by your spirit. And that we would grow into our union with Christ to be more and more aware of it as we commune with you in personal quiet times. And especially as we grow together as the body of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that when our strength fails to cling to you, that you would hold us fast. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.